0: Are we doing enough to make sure that American children are learning all the math they need to be successful in life? We're going to talk about that today on The Citizen Stewart Show. We're also going to cover whether reforming schools is enough. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered. We're looking to shed some light on the dark forces that are affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen-Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me as co-host is Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, before we dive in today, I understand that you have some plugs that you might want to uh, offer up. For our listeners. So what is that about? Two
1: education uh, pieces of content happening in Lost Debate World. Uh, One is from this new podcast called Sweat the Technique. This is the podcast that we dropped a sample episode in the feed last week, the Doug Lamov interview. We have our second episode coming up on Wednesday, which is with Dr. Kelly McGonigal from Stanford University. And she wrote this book called The Upside of Stress. And she has a rather provocative thesis that we talk about in this episode, which is, can stress be a good thing? And is there a certain way you could frame stress in your life? to make it actually beneficial. Honestly, it blew my mind. This interview, I came in with one perspective. I came out with another, and I think you will too. So go to sweat the technique, uh, wherever you get your podcast. you can listen to that second episode on Wednesday. Um, the second thing is if you haven't yet subscribed to imbroglio this week, uh, tomorrow, I'll be dropping a piece about the most important trends in education and uh, so yeah, that's that's what's going on in my world. What do you have to plug today, Chris?
0: One thing that I want to plug is uh, last week, I wrote a piece for Education Post, and you can find it if you go to Education Post in the action section. And it's titled, uh, Help Your Child Become a Math Master. And we did a whole week last week on math. And this kind of leads into our first story. But the story was as one parent to another parent. And it, went, it started with a little bit like this. Your kid comes home, asks you for homework. You feel like you're doing your duty and you go to help with homework and you look down and they offer you a problem that they're trying to figure out and it looks like Greek to you. It's a math problem and you think to yourself, oh my God, this is going to be that first moment when my kid discovers that I don't know everything and that I'm not actually the master of the entire universe. And in that moment, just in that little interaction and in that moment, there's so much insecurity and shame And a loss of kind of like authority that you feel you might do a lot of things with that moment and with those feelings. But what my piece argues that you should do is we all need to get over ourselves as parents and as adults. We need to stop saying we're not math people. We're not great at math. If the goal is to raise mathematicians. If you're going to be a parent, you have to take care of your own stuff first. Now, Ravi, this won't be a problem for you because you're Ivy and you're like so good at everything <laughs> and you're so smart at everything. Oh, thank you. And you probably never struggled with math or anything like that. Oh, I sure did. But there's a, there's a way in which you can look down at an eighth grader's homework and they're, you're, they're asking you for help and you go, oh my God, I, I have no idea how they're teaching you this or what, you know, what, what we're supposed to do here. So my piece argues for um, doing whatever you can. You don't have to become a mathematician, but go to Khan Academy, go to YouTube, go somewhere, get phone a friend and fill in any gaps that you possibly can. If you expect to raise a child, that's going to respect math the way that they should. So that's my plug, my first plug, go see my piece, but it rolls right into our first story for today. Uh, And that story is in Baltimore. This is like, I don't know if this is going to be surprising for, for many people, but it is for me. There are 23 schools in Baltimore where there isn't a single proficient student in math. And this is in a, a place, in a city, where the Algebra Project, started by famed and iconic civil rights leader Bob Moses, was started. And Bob Moses was a civil rights leader who was one of the ones who stepped out and said, if math isn't part of like what we're fighting for our kids to be great at, we're not really fighting for them to be liberated. We're not really fighting for them. And it's rare. It's interesting. You know, in civil rights, we heard a lot about literacy and just about school in general, but his thing was math and algebra. And the algebra project has been running in Baltimore for years and has been doing a good job. And that's why like those two things are hard for me to put together. How do you have, number one, a superintendent who is really hard charging? Dr. Sonia Santelis is is a hard charging, reform-oriented superintendent who really gets instruction and learning right so it's not that you have a bad superintendent actually they have more black teachers and actually kind of good black teachers in baltimore than in a lot of places so that might not be your problem either what is your problem when you have 23 schools in your district where not a single student is proficient in math now i don't want to just pick on baltimore i am raising them up at the beginning of this but we have to say on an international scale americas americans are not math leaders Overall, we're not math leaders. So when we were doing a little bit of research for this show, and it popped up that like (laughs) in fourth grade, it's an extreme minority of students in the United States that are actually proficient in math. And in fourth and eighth grade, it gets worse in eighth grade. But, you know, it gets down to like a quarter of students. I don't think that people listening to this who aren't education insiders would know that it's not just those kids over there, or it's just not your picture of the downtrodden kids mainstream two-parent households with middle-class kids often have uh, students that are failing in math. So that's the setup. I want to talk about this. What are the dark forces that are stopping us from having better math instruction and better math outcomes? And Robbie, I don't know if you have anything right off the bat that you want to like, correct in anything that I said, you're, you know, you're an an educationist, you run actual schools, you know,
1: my sole job here is not to correct you. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, just to put an additional layer on that data, they're actually, so you talked about 23 schools that had no student who is proficient. There were actually it's even worse than that. There were two additional schools that didn't even show up in the data because they're specialized school. One for incarcerated youth, one for students with disabilities. That you can add to that list. And there were a few schools. 20 additional schools that just had one or two students proficient in math. So that's 20 more stu- schools plus 22. So we're talking about 40 something schools that had only you know one, two or zero students proficient in math in the entire city of Baltimore. You ask what's going on in Baltimore. What's wrong if you have capable people, dedicated people, impressive people in certain key roles? The hell the if I know what's going wrong here, I mean, you tell me Chris <laughs> I, I think it's 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 rather puzzling and frustrating to see. I mean, if it's anything like North Nashville, I could give you an assessment of of at least you know what's happened there or what's happened in Staten Island, what's happened in Jackson, Mississippi, but I'm not as much of a Baltimore expert as you may be here.
0: Well, I'll say this much. this is not you know. <laughs> You might find something to disagree with in this. I did a, a video last week about this and I said, you know, listen, a guy like me who, who beats up on the school district everywhere and traditional schools, you know, for years because I want to see new things and I'm a reformer or, you know, whatever, you would expect that I would say this is about bad teaching, bad instruction, bad schools and we need to shut them all down and, you know, whatever. That's me. That, that would have been me a couple of years ago. But what I came to when I thought about this is we're all the problem. Like, there's no such thing as like an entire city whose kids can't read or do math and have it be just because the schools are bad. What is everybody else doing? What are all the adults in the world of those children doing? There's a lot going wrong in your life if you're just not learning your colors, your shapes, your numbers, your alphabet, and all of that. And it is in fashion for educationists to look for an educational intervention, like an educational strategy to turn it around. But when an entire city can't read or can't do math, and you do have people showing up every day to try and educate them, I think you could find problems on both sides. You could probably find some things that maybe they should do differently within the schools. We do have a story here that popped up as part of our research from Erin Richards in USA Today, and she's talking about how all of American math is, is behind the curve because we teach it differently than other countries teach math, right? So, you know, in it, she talks about how we're, 31st, or ranked 31 uh, out of 79 countries in math. We're number nine in reading, so we're doing much better in reading, but number 31 in math on average. But if you look at those other countries that are cleaning our clock, they just teach differently. Like the way she, she talks about something, and you actually have brought this up on this show, even with what you talk about with calculus, for instance, the sequencing of, of math. Uh, she talks about the geometry sandwich. So, you know, we teach Algebra 1, then Geometry, then Algebra 2. And in other nations, they teach a combination of five mathematical concepts and disciplines at once in Unit 1, Unit 2, and Unit 3, which makes you work on more nuanced problems, more contextual problems or whatnot. That's all in the weeds and, and whatever. But on the school side, you would think about things like that. Well, how do we teach and why do we teach you know, at these different grade levels, the way that we do. But still, and this is something that's going to be not going to be popular with everybody. There's something outside of school that is going very wrong within when entire communities are not reading or doing math, right? There's a lot of adults in the lives of children. And I'm just thinking for myself, like, I'm pro- probably part of the problem. Why am I not at the Boys and Girls Club tutoring on a regular basis? Why am I not part of the solution? Because we can beat up on the schools all we want. But, I mean, Baltimore was, is a good example for me of some place where I feel like – it's not like one of those places where they're against reform and where they're against trying different things. Or, you know, it is a place where there might be some resistance in the staff. I'm going to say that,
1: you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I wouldn't yeah. think of Baltimore as a reform-friendly city. Not that reform is necessarily going to solve all this, like at least the traditional you know, versions of reform. But this gets at – Like, let me defend reform a little bit in the sense that one of the core tenets of reform is that we even care about this data. And one of the reasons why I continue to defend some of the pillars that are, like, least popular in reform, like testing and accountability and tracking subgroups, is that we wouldn't even be having this conversation if we didn't take this data uh, worth noting also, you talked about this data from the OECD, This, I think this is the PISA assessment, the Program for International Student Assessment, which is this, this assessment that showed that we're 30th in math. We're 11th out of 79 in science. Which is, so you're right. Like, there's something uniquely bad happening in math in this country. But like Baltimore, it seems like math is a leading indicator in something deeply disturbing happening in some of our cities right now. You know, we I've talked about this before. When I started Nashville Prep originally, uh, fewer than 1% of kids at Pearl Cone High School, the local zoned high school, were college-ready ACT scores, right? to talking about math and mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure those numbers aren't much different right now, at least in the zone schools over there. there. There's something deeply disturbing happening in a lot of our urban schools. And I think it's like, it's so deep and widespread. Like if you're looking at Baltimore, right? You could point at so many different factors, but I think the one that you put your finger on, which is the fact that I don't think we all feel like we have a shared responsibility in this. Like we're not we're not running around with our hair on fire saying this is a national emergency. And that's what I think like reform at its best was like, all right, this is an emergency. We need to focus on this. Let's send our young people to these places, right? Like I give Teach for America a hard time, right? But one of the things that I love about Teach for America, especially when it was at its best, was that they were like, we're going to send our best and our brightest to the places where they're needed the most on the issue that matters the most. And we could we could quibble with, were they actually the best and the brightest? Were we sending them to the right place? Was the model right and all that? But I fundamentally believe that that was the right kind of energy, right? That was the right kind of conversation to be like, this is the most important thing you could do as a young person in this country right now, is go solve this problem. And I don't feel like we have that energy right now.
0: I'm just so happy that you said something positive about TFA. I just, <laughs> we finally came around to the, to making you say something coherent and nice about TFA.
1: Well, send that to Elise and all the other people over at the Leadership of TFA. I'm not a hater. I promise. I want to see them do well.
0: I can't tell, but I will say this much. <laughs> I, I will say this much. The urgency that you talk about does feel like it has been lost. One of the things that I think reformers had been known for and have been known for, though, is seeing the technical problem. So what is technically the problem with the way that we teach math and how math is delivered to to young people? And we stop having discussions like that. When, when we start wading into things like culture wars and into superfluous issues and book bans and all these other things, where our eye is not on the prize then for the technical issues how do you technically teach a child to read how do you technically teach a child uh, math and grade by grade what do you do and does it make sense what we do by grades right there's all these questions that could be answered in non-political ways that should be like who are the math experts in our country some of the math experts are pushing for a new way to teach math now this is where politics gets in the way all the time no matter what we do we try and set standards across states and we think that's just a no-brainer Of course, a nation should have standards across states so that individual states don't game the system and create their own standards that hide their poor performance, right? So that's what reasonable people would say. And then you go and you try and do something like that, and you try and pass it. And then unreasonable people show up and say all kinds of really just ridiculous, stupid things. Like this is you know a conspiracy from the Rothschilds to take over America by dumbing down all of education, whatever.
1: But I do have a question about that. Baltimore has good standards, from what I understand, right? They, I think they're probably a Common Core state. I might be wrong about that, but they so. I think the issue can't be that the, that in Baltimore, the standards are the problem, right?
0: No, no. Where I was driving with that, what might be the problem, though, is every time you talk about changing something with math or with reading, no matter what it is that the best thinking people in the world have thought up, becomes the math wars, the reading wars, right? The wars always show up. No, we don't want to do traditional math. We want to do fuzzy math. No, we don't want to do fuzzy math anymore. We want to do kind of like a hybrid math. You know, we want to choose your own adventure math when the best, the smartest people, the best and the brightest in the United States are saying, we have looked at these other countries. We know why they're cleaning our clock. We should just go for it, pull the bandaid off and teach math in a way that makes more sense. That's more coherent in the sequencing of how we treat the disciplines in math. But the moment that you say that and do that, and it's the smartest guys in the room who have figured that out, and the, and especially if they wanna do it on a national basis, you start bumping into all kinds of special interests. All kinds of special interest groups who have a vested interest in you not changing it. Textbook companies, curriculum providers, uh, state unions and associations that don't have teachers that are old and don't want to like go to a type of math that's harder for them to teach or that they might need retraining to actually teach, right? There's just like a whole host of people that have a vested interest and pensions in not changing things. And sometimes it's terrible what it does to us.
1: Well, yeah, you could add to that parents sometimes who both want a change, but sometimes will fight the change. We saw that with Common Core, you know, Louis C.K. sharing like the math problem from his kids and how confusing it is. And, you know, the suburban parents going after Arnie Duncan, like sometimes these changes and this, you know, this is, this is what I think is also standing in the way some other big innovations like mastery based education that I like is like, anytime you, you know, dramatically change the experience, even if it's for the better people get upset. And so I think it's, it's a challenge. I do think that this underscores though, this data is so glaring to me, especially the Baltimore data, but I would also say the PISA data nationally, that it, it, it makes you wonder whether just dramatic change is needed, not just incremental change and tweaks, right? We we didn't get a chance to talk about the part of the high school piece that I had last week around math, but I talked about things like, you know, uh, financial literacy and moving to more statistics based and data science approach in, in and math and all, I believe all of that. But I think there's something fundamentally broken about the way we're even delivering education in some of these places that goes beyond pedagogical differences. And I think, you know, something like, for instance, like sweeping changes needed in this country on the order of like, you know, the conversation around national service, for example. You know, maybe Teach for America in its heyday wasn't even enough. Like maybe we need to be almost like the way we drafted people in Vietnam. Like maybe we need to be drafting people into the educational fight right now in this country and saying, look, like this is a national emergency. And, you know, maybe like in exchange for forgiving student loans, for example, we say maybe it's not required like in Vietnam, but we say, look, free education, if you give two to three years in the hardest hit places in this country, you know, that way it's not just sending in teachers, but like maybe we flood the zone. And we know high power tutoring, Roland Fryer and others have seen this. high power tutoring is one of the most demonstrably effective ways that you could turn things around in schools. So maybe we flood the zone in places like Baltimore with young, smart people who want to get their student loans forgiven. And instead of just saying Teach for America model, they're teaching, we say, all right, we're going to send five people into that classroom. I'm like maybe that would be really powerful.
0: I think that gets back to... Like when I say, what are the adults doing in a community? Where are the volunteers? Where are the, are the retired right. people? Where are the people saying, no, this is my neighborhood. This is my school. These are my kids. This is my city. I'm sick of reading this in the newspaper. Like, you know, what you just said, flood the zone, an army of people that care and are concerned about this. Now with math, it feels a little bit different in that you have so many adults that themselves are kind of math victims, right? Like we, we've turned out two or three generations of different kinds of math people. And now they're helping their kids and grandkids with homework that's a third generation, like a new generation of, why are you doing all those steps to get that problem solved, right? You know, the the whole Louis C.K. thing. I looked down and my daughter was, you know, doing the math, blah, 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 whatever. Now he's got a megaphone. The reason he resonates is because it's kind of funny and it's also kind of true that like it's, it's relatable. There's a lot of people who are going to have the same problem that he have. We're not educating adults. First of all, we made a major change with things like Common Core, and we did not do a very good job of preparing adults for the changes that would come. Parents, tutors, others, even teachers, right? So... That has to be part of flooding the zone. Train people. I mean, like, listen, I've said this so many times. It seems to me like being a good mayor would be one of the easiest jobs ever on this issue specifically, because nobody cares. No one thinks that the mayor is in charge of the schools, but there's so much extra you could do to make sure that the kids in your city with your bully pulpit have additional help and resources that they need in terms of, we're gonna be a city that reads. We're gonna be a city that does math. We're gonna be a city that loves our kids. We're gonna be a city that puts all of our volunteer out of school time into math for three years or something like that. It just seems like if you're running from air somewhere, that this would be one of the easiest parts of your platform. marshal your city services and your bully pulpit with the business community, with the faith community, with the nonprofit network community pulling everybody together to make the city theme it up, theme up math. We're going to be in five years. We're going to go from laggard to leader, right? I feel like I should run for mayor. Yeah, do it. Well, this gets at like the, the math gap you talked
1: about, the adults not necessarily knowing the math, which like, honestly, if you put me in front of a lot of kids, depending on what they're learning, I might not know the math either, but I can help them navigate Khan Academy and I could sit next to them to make sure they're on task, right? Like, so I think like the the beauty of the technology we have right now is that the adult doesn't necessarily need to be the expert. The adult just needs to be an adult sometimes. And they could just sit next to the kid and help them navigate it. So I'm bullish on this kind of stuff. And, and honestly, I think there are all these people out there who make fun of this sort of quote unquote savior complex. And they have a lot of good points. I saw it firsthand. There are all these unintended consequences and well-meaning people who are totally out of touch, who we've we've sent into places, whether they're inner city schools or foreign countries, (laughs) like to go do things like build a well or whatever. And like, yeah, it's stupid, it's laughable, but I don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. I actually do think it's really important to motivate people in this country to try to make a difference. And to push past their privilege and invest that privilege in the lives of others. And yes, it can be awkward. There could be downsides to it. We have to have a really thoughtful conversation about it. But I don't want to push people away from doing something to help people who don't have the same privileges they have. And I mm-hmm. think it's a really tough conversation. But I think we might have kind of overcorrected over the past 10 years now where people are like, we're almost like now so hyper individualistic and capitalistic that some of these programs like AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, Teach for America you know are struggling i think in part because people are like yeah this is thankless stuff i'm just going to be criticized for trying to do this work and so we have to reopen that conversation to say how do we do this work well how do we how do we send people into places where they still can make a difference and still be applauded for the effort
0: well you know it's only going to become more important as it's harder to find teachers Right. Right. Like you have, you have districts and places in the United States that are having to switch to subs and switch to other forms of like getting teachers. And of all those teachers, what might be the hardest group to find? Really good, solid, competent math teachers, like mathematics teachers. That's adding a level of difficulty, which is why we need all these really smart, brainy young people who have gotten into college with very high kind of math scores and, and and you know, are going to do something great in the world one day to spend a couple of years maybe doing what you said. Now, I think the draft part is where you get kind of spooky authoritarian.
1: Well, to be clear, I said it could be an incentive-based system where we just forgive student loans in exchange for that.
0: So free college and you have to go do a tour of duty in you know some place now. One thing I do want to correct that you said earlier. We're picking a little bit on Baltimore because that was a jarring and sta- staggering thing for me to read that there are so many schools with no kids that are proficient in them. Which I mean, easily could have been my target to call all those schools failing. You know, a few years ago, and I've had a little bit of adjustment and change in in the nuances that I see in the world. So you know, I won't I won't do that. I feel like <laughs> there are whole communities that need to be on the hook for that level uh, of failure but I do want to say it's not about urban areas. It's not about urban school districts. It's not just about this. Isn't an urban thing. When I tell you that uh, almost seventy five percent of the kids in one of those grades fourth or eighth I can't remember which one are not proficient, that means that that's a lot of kids outside of urban areas. That right. means that that's, it's a national problem. So if you're listening to this and you're in the suburbs or you're in some rural area, thinking to yourself, "Yeah, that is sad," but that's those other people's kids, I'll just you know encourage you to kind of like maybe do a backyard check and find out like what's going on in your own backyard. I know that for me. I I live in a little kind of rural Pleasantville and it, man, it's, it's startling bad. It's actually like, like y- if you didn't look at the numbers, if you just looked at with your eyes to see, Oh, it's a great school, you know, great stuff going on, but yeah, it's shockingly bad. So for all of us, it's not, it's, it's not just an urban problem.
1: Well, you should run for mayor of Pleasantville. Actually, that's where you should run Uh <sighs> I hear, I hear. They love black male leaders in Pleasantville. That's
0: you'd listen. I hear you do okay. They kind of do. They kind of do. You just have to have the right politics, anyways. You just have to have the right and say the right things. Yeah. So true. you know, listen. This kind of rolls into our second segment. With that first one, what I would say to people is, don't just listen to a discussion like this and don't have some form of call to action. What I would say to folks, to all of us together, is to think about our communal responsibility for the schools and for the kids in those schools and find a thing you can do. The one thing that you can do, I think always, is start with yourself. Uh, I think that all of us have a little bit of math anxiety who aren't people that have been formed with a, a great math concept, like idea growing up. And, and we're plentiful. We're, we might even be the majority. And for those of us that you know feel that way or whatnot, challenge yourself. Take it on. Like actually go look, lean into it, like treat it like a fitness thing, right? Like lean into it, like go, just go and do the most difficult stuff or start with the easy stuff or start with something like, you know, if you're going to do one pushup a day and then do two push ups a day, whatnot, what's the math equivalent of that? Like the baby steps, but do something so that your kid has a math positive parent at home or a math positive uncle or a math positive aunt, whatever but we can cure this and we should as a nation. We can't be a dumb nation. There is no future in being math stupid in the United States. And that leads us to our think segment. This one isn't mad necessarily, but it feels like it had some mad for me a little bit in it. I, I don't know how you felt about it, Ravi. But in our second segment here, the think segment, we read a piece from future ed called when school reform is not enough and the the focus of this is basically to say that the ed reform movement has largely been focused on educational challenges and interventions for students but they left a lot of things off the table that are also important to student achievement things that happen outside of schools and boy this is this is how you see me change like hats and perspectives really quick, because now this is cutting the other direction of, we didn't concentrate on the stuff that's outside of you know schools, like a parent's level of education, their economic class, food stability, access to after-school care programs, supplementary materials, all these other things. And maybe as reformers, those are things that we should start paying attention to now more.
1: Yeah, this is by Josh Anderson, by the way, who was a former Teach for America leader in Chicago, among other things. So he says that we need a larger reform agenda that extends beyond schools because the structural barriers that students face across many domains of life and the economy are bigger than education interventions can solve. I hear these things all the time and I'm like, yeah, of course, we're not just educators. We care about everything in the life of a child. And I care about healthcare. I care about education. I care about economics. I want kids to, to do well. And everything has to work together. But I'm often left wondering, who is the audience for this message? Mm-hmm. If it's educators, mm-hmm. then I'm sorry. They don't have enough time to perform open heart surgery on a kid. They don't have time to run that clinic. They're being asked to, to be clear. I saw Mm -hmm. this firsthand. I also coach a lot of leaders. And, you know, I coach one leader, for instance, in Chicago, uh, who's a superintendent now, used to be a school principal. And one thing that she's frustrated about often Is that she's being told, let me run, you you know, you should run tax prep out of your basement. You should have a food pantry. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. And she's like, I am holding on. I got teachers quitting. I'm burnt out myself. I have my own kids I don't see enough. And I really love these kids and I want to do best by them. And our schools are outperforming everybody else around me. I can't also be running a clinic in my basement, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I just don't have time. And so I've got this one part to play. And, I, and I'm and i going to vote for politicians who have a more expansive vision. So maybe if they're the audience for this piece, great. But I, as an educator, and this is future Ed, and I'm imagining most of the people reading Josh's piece are educators, I'm sorry. Like, they don't have enough time and energy to devote to every single issue. And so if it's the politician who's the audience for this, I agree, Josh. Like, absolutely, they need to have an expansive vision of all these things. But if it's the educator... If they're worried about every issue, they're they're actually accomplishing nothing because we need people who are specialists who are really, really good at their domain. And it's not popular to say that, but that's where I come down. Where do you come down on
0: this? I mean, I feel like the point that you made about who is this for, like who it's directed at makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Because I think there's one conversation that you want to have with families and community members about the success of their children and about their responsibility for the success of their children. There's another conversation you want to have with the political class of a city. I mentioned mayors earlier, but city council members and other electeds in a city. The children in your jurisdiction aren't like somehow magically not your constituents because they don't vote and because you don't handle the schools. That's dumb. That's dumb. If if you're mayor of a city and I'm mayor of a city and my kids are doing wildly better than yours in, in most health outcomes and whatnot, I'm a better mayor than you are. Uh, And if I'm a city council that pays only attention to condos and none to kids, I'm a better city council member than you do if I pay attention to what's going on with the children in my jurisdiction, right? For instance, their safety, their health, their economic security, their access to services, the things. What does your city offer a child? You know, parents think about this sometimes when they think about taking a job in another city. Like what's in that city for kids? What will it be like to raise a kid in Boston You know, versus what will it be like to raise a kid in Austin? right? And those are policy decisions that people make in those cities around children. Some, even, some don't even have a children's agenda. Some don't have a children's budget. So when it comes to some of these things, I feel the guy, but I don't want a podiatrist worried about dentistry, right?
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good way to put it. Yeah.
0: That's the last thing I want is like my dentist giving me oncology advice, right? That's not like, that's not a smart thing to do. Now they, they both take care of the body. They both work with the body. But like, what are you supposed to be doing as an educator? Like, I get it. I get it. Feed the kids, vote the right way to make sure they're getting all they need outside of the class. But when you talk about reform having missed the boat on this part of it, I feel of two minds. In one way, I can say there are reform-oriented people or thinkers who put way too much weight in everything but external factors and things that are going on in kids' lives, sometimes to the detriment of those kids to the detriment of how you serve them and work with them. At the same time, we should be looking at things like No Child Left Behind, the race to the top, and all the subsequent kind of, you know, efforts that we've had, large-scale reform efforts, and thinking through what part of this worked and what part didn't. What do we have evidence of? What did test-based accountability do? What did teacher evaluation do? What did small schools do? What did, you know, data tracking and data disaggregation do? Those are educational questions. Those aren't sociological questions. Right, So I'm not going to ask a sociologist to help me figure out my educational interventions. Not that they're totally unrelated to each other, though. Like, I do believe in this thing around the whole child. I disagree with you a little bit on the thing around, like, how much schools can do because, well, I don't know, this is about to make your head spin, I bet, a little bit, but... Like I used to rag on community schools as being kind of like a union prop to be like anti-charter. Like they would invent these kind of schools that do everything. And I used to laugh about them and rag on them and call them like health clinics with teachers that can't teach. That's what I used to call community (laughs) schools, right? That was like my really cheap shot against community schools. And boy, have I come full circle on that one because especially post-pandemic, we need schools that can be centers and hubs for more than just classroom teaching.
1: Yeah, well, I want to be clear. I, I have a former girlfriend who runs development for one of these major community schools organizations. I don't have a problem if she's listening. I don't want her to get mad at me. <laughs> I think if if you're if what you're saying is like, and this gets to the audience, if what you're saying is you want to create these Harlem Children's Zone like community hubs that are a one-stop shop for parents where they could solve many problems and you're going to fund it. And that school principal and that teacher, their job is simply to be like, go down the hall and see somebody else who runs something else and it's all integrated. Great my problem is when we're asking these people to try to solve many problems on these limited budgets and limited time, right? Like I, like I I see the value in putting it all in one place and having an integrated approach, but that still doesn't mean I don't like that principle. I don't, I don't want them worrying about what happens down the hall. I want them to be able to take it for granted. But it, but I don't put it on their shoulders, I guess is my point.
0: You just made a really good, great point, though, with a great example. Like I'm pushing charters right now to be community charters. And luckily, as it turns out, I found a lot of charter schools that actually meet the definition of community schools. They are community charters. They're not like your corporate charters. And they're doing it partially for their survival of like, we can't be in this community without having partnerships and relationships with others to kind of meet the needs of our kids. So they're part of an ecosystem of like nonprofits. We do the school part. You do the food pantry. You do the, the dentistry. You know, like they've got their different, you know, one that does eyeglasses and programs and whatnot. They even have like citizenship classes for uh, students who have parents that, you know, are held back by not being citizens yet and, and make sure that the adults get taken care of but the principal, to your point, isn't the person that has to do everything. All the principal has to do is form the right relationships, like with the yeah. other organizations, because you already have a building, you already have a place to be.
1: Mm-hmm. But that is, we can't overstate, like, that's still very hard. I would still, like, so if, if you're a principal over the past two years, you're, you know, you've got COVID shutdowns and getting kids back into school, you got, you know, a teacher, uh, depending on where you are, you could have a teacher shortage crisis. And it was already hard to do that job. So part of what I, I'm I'm advocating for is like a little grace on the principals and be like, look, like, especially because we got a lot of funders who listen to this and all that, like, like, we've got to think about how you put that on their shoulders and how we incentivize it and how we create the space for that. Because I know a lot of principals do, especially if we're trying to charter principals. Like when I started my first school, we were renting space from Tennessee State University where we could, we could, we had to be uh, out of the building by 5 p.m. every day, everybody, including teachers. And we had to turn our classrooms back into a night school for college students. We literally had no ability to run space, we had no extra classrooms. And so it was. Like it's, depending on who you are, you might not even have the space constraints. It's very hard, especially for charters to get access to really good space to even run the educational program. So I guess like my point is, like I think you and I are similar on this is like, I actually think the idea of having these spaces is really good. We just have to be careful about what we ask of every person involved of in it. Like we can't have everybody be a generalist because running that clinic is a specialized skill running that school is a specialized skill, running that, you know, being a social worker is a specialized skill. And we can't ask teachers to do all of these things. Like the the social work is a perfect example of it. Kids coming into school with the kinds of trauma that they have, there are certain people who are really well-equipped to deal with certain parts of that trauma than others. And like right now we're putting so much on the shoulders of teachers when it comes Mm -hmm. to that. And they're burning out. They're getting stressed. They're getting frustrated. And you're going to run for mayor? I'm going to run for teachers union president on
0: this. Yeah. Uh, not before me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know, but to, to be fair to Josh, he makes he makes a lot of points in this piece. And I think, you know, he talks about how teaching continues to be treated as a weak semi-profession. These are his words. Mm-mm. Not the honored, selective, empowered, and well-compensated occupation. I agree. I, I think this, like, how do we get to the point where teachers are are treated with the kind of reverence they're treated in other countries? I'm not sure. Like, maybe you have the answer to this. Obviously, more money, more autonomy. I don't know. Like, what would you do?
0: I mean, we have such a big kind of multi-pronged problem, just in general. Like, we, we need to just stop and stop pretending like, there aren't complexities in life. We just talked about math for you a know, big segment here. There's a math here, there's a problem. When people say it's not rocket, scientists, rocket science, this is bigger than that. This is 50 million kids in 14,000 districts with something like 100,000 schools with all different kinds of programs and things going on that makes it very hard for us to get a handle on how to operationalize and, and make systemic some form of intervention, right? And we wouldn't do it this way if we weren't America, because the reason we have all those districts and all those different schools doing wildly different things is because we're American. And we think that's the way it should be. Were we another country, we would be thinking about how you make systems work. (laughs) Like, Like systems, we'd be thinking systemically. So one of our problems here is, what would you do about the teacher problem of this or that and the other? Well, in which locale? In what state, with what set of rules and what state of law, what set of laws, and what set of you know heritage in terms of their politics? Like you know, things that are all going to be barriers, you know to doing something good. But Josh says something here, like grounding ourselves in a fuller understanding of what equal opportunity means has clear implications for how we think about policy and politics. First, we need to think bigger about a long-term policy agenda. In broad strokes, this agenda needs to tackle core problems of America, American education. But, and here's the big but for me, also includes strategies to build wealth for low-income families, increase incomes of lower-wage workers, and invest in historically disinvested communities. This is what's important about that but, where he places the but. Everything that comes before the the but needs to be figured out by educationists. People who are in education need to figure out what should be the long-term policy agenda for creating systemic change in how we teach, what we teach when we teach it, by who, to who, and how we prepare people to do all of those jobs. Those are all educationist questions that need to be figured out by people within the field who have the discipline. After the but is where you get into sociology and economics (laughs) and other things. So, I mean, maybe this is no longer a mayor question. Maybe now this, in some ways, becomes a governor question. What's your child cabinet? health and human Mm -hmm. services, your workforce development people, your business people, you know, commerce and all that stuff. And it's not like that hasn't been tried before, but at least you can start somewhere.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into a question you got from a listener, Chris.
0: So here's the way that the question is posed. I'm very curious about how you and Ravi each answered this question. Suppose you have 100 people who have been publicly elected to serve in office, but you have the ability to place them yourself. 10 are individuals you consider to be excellent. And 90 are individuals you consider to be those you might otherwise organize against. How would you (laughs) place them? If the context was a state, how would you place them? House, Senate, school boards, charter boards, city councils, et cetera, all at play?
1: Well, I I think it's a good opportunity just to discuss something. You know, I think our listeners know this. I've helped elect a lot of people, and I've spent a lot of time in a couple of different states thinking about what are the places to best spend the money that I had at Arena to prioritize leaders that were going to make the biggest difference, and I'll just say this, like a good example is, is New York, my home state reformers, education reformers, people who believe in charter schools and things like that are actually in pretty good shape right now, even though the vast, vast majority of people elected to different offices in that state don't like charter schools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And why is that the case? Well, because we got the right offices, like in a world where we only had 10 out of a hundred, we've got the mayor of New York. We've got the governor and we've got the most powerful Democrat in Congress in Hakeem Jeffries. So if you're gonna send three people to office, I would take those three over every single person left. But then we also have the speaker of the assembly, pretty much. Like it's it can be tricky from year to year, but so you start to say, all right, well, we've got the most powerful positions. That's pretty obvious. But sometimes it's not obvious who's the most powerful person in the state. So, for example, in Mississippi, the lieutenant governor at the time, when I was down there, was Tate Reeves, who's now the governor. Mississippi, actually, lieutenant governor can be more powerful than the governor. So in a given state, you can you have these offices that hold outsized power. Oftentimes, Gaming it out so you get the right person to be the speaker of the right legislative chamber or whatever is more important than even having the the bare majority. And there's all sorts of backroom politicking to get the right person to chair the right committee, et cetera. And sometimes that's way more powerful than having just the raw numbers. So that is to say, like, you could distribute your 10 really effectively, for better or worse. This is how special interests work, right? Like, they get their 10 into the right committees With the right power, and then as long as they get the nine, the other ninety, to not care enough to fight you, then you're you're settled, right? And there are also stupid symbolic jobs in every state, and the key is not to fight for those jobs. Like a good example is in New York City, borough presidents, public advocates. Let them have it. Just let them have it. Don't worry about those jobs. You know, like focus on the the jobs with real power, and those tend to be executive Mm -hmm. roles too. Like I like mayors even if the mayor doesn't have control of the school system, a good example is Nashville, really helpful to have the mayor because mm-hmm. sometimes the mayor controls the facilities. Sometimes the mayor could use the bully pulpit to fight on your behalf. I mean, to me, governors are the most important thing everywhere because there's all sorts of things that they put the right committees in place. They enforce the laws. They can cause trouble. They they often like have veto power over the budget. So, you know, as New York was a good example of this, they can just bully people who disagree with them into putting down their swords. And sometimes that could work your vintage or not. So the question, like, obviously, I don't know what state we're talking about, but like, just let people have the dumb jobs that don't actually have any power. Don't worry about those. Focus on the ones that have the power.
0: I think the point of his question is that school board is like what you said about the ones that you said, let them have it.
1: Public advocate, borough president.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the point of this is to say that the school boards are like that. Let the morons take over that because that's. It depends
1: though on the powers that the school boards have. Some school boards are incredibly powerful. Some of them have been gutted. Like a good example is Tennessee. I hated our school board. They, They tried to do everything possible to stop us. But over time, the state passed laws to usurp the powers of that school board. And for charter schools, that's generally a good thing. But you could start to see the downsides of some of that, because sometimes that means that some of these like more draconian free speech laws and banning this book or whatever can be shoved down the throats of localities. So I've complicated views on some of that stuff.
0: I actually, and I think this is the reason why you know this happened in a text to me, I push people competent, smart people to run for a school board. And I think it's a job that competent, smart people who don't have aspirations for anything bigger or higher, who have an interest you know, in education and who have some skills, like every board needs somebody that has some financial skills, some legal skills, a background in something that would serve the organization that you're trying to be a board of. I, I believe in our civic society. And I believe at the basis of our civic society is our education board, our board of education. And I do think talented people, we shouldn't act like there's only 10 out of 100 talented people available. So there's some scarcity. So we should just like go crowd everybody out to try and be governors and whatnot, which doesn't make any sense to me when there's whole cities full of college educated people that are really smart that that could actually upgrade their board overnight. Right? You don't have to be governor. You don't have to go be senator or governor or whatnot. With your set of skills working at RBC Dane, you could be a school board member tomorrow that would add value in your own city to the moron bozo show that is going on in a lot of school districts right now. Right, And I can just give you one example. Minneapolis is a very college-educated city. I know a lot about it. I was on the board in Minneapolis Public Schools uh, on their, their education board. And what I've watched over like a 10 to 12-year period is the capacity for cognitive load of board members go down by like about 90%. When I ran, there was an article in the newspaper, uh, in one of the local papers called, We're All Bozos on This Board. So the board that preceded us was this board of really kind of like, just were really problematic. And then after us, our board came in and we were more about our business. And we turned a lot of things around a short amount of time. But with each succeeding board after that, we had a New York style weirdness. Like you guys get these really weird people that run for things sometimes that have some weird kind of crank, you know, axe to grind. And you're like, why are you running? Well, we had whole fields of that all of a sudden <laughs> take over. <laughs>
1: the, the rent is too damn high <laughs> party or whatever. Yes,
0: we used to have like right. none of that. And then we suddenly had whole slates of that. And the difference that they, of the chaos that they caused when we finally got a full board of that When the smart people decided to stop running, period, for the board, the material change in the district put the the district into exile now. The district now of one of the nicest, richest cities, most college-educated cities in the entire Midwest is run by morons. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to say it openly only because it's not considered to be lacking compassion to say it because everybody knows it. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, so.
1: Yeah. But the problem is, okay, like, his question was 10 out of 100, right? Obviously, I think there's greater than 10% representation of common sense out there. So I think you can get a, a much larger representation. But if only forced to do 10%, that's how it allocated.
0: Well, I appreciate the question and the, you know, listen, if we got it wrong, you know who you are and you know you're listening to this. So... If we got the question wrong, shoot me some feedback and maybe we'll take another pass at it on a future show. And speaking of future shows, for people who are listening to this particular show and think, I have something to say. I want to register a complaint. Or you guys got something very wrong. Or I have a better idea for a topic than the topics you guys have been coming up with. Let me give you two ways to get that information to us. The first way is to send us an email at show at com, or to call at 321 Two one three nine one seven one. We will see what we can do with your feedback. Other things you can do to help the show: you can subscribe to the show if you haven't subscribed already. You can also leave a review of the show. Leave something good, man. Be you know kind of like thorough about it and tell others why they should listen to the show. Hopefully, uh, you would give us a good rating and share it with friends and family, other people that you think should be educated on some of the issues that we talk about here at the Citizen Stewart Show. We're always trying to improve. We want to hear your feedback, but please also share the show. Help us grow it. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show on the Lost Debate Network. We are always happy that you guys listen and that you give us feedback, that you're part of the Citizen Stewart Show family now. Appreciate you all. We'll see you on the next episode.